Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. I chose this week. Dan, I forced you to watch a movie. I got done watching this movie and I immediately texted you and said, we need to do an episode on this. I have no idea what you actually think about this movie. I only know that you agreed to do the podcast on it. So what are we what are we talking about today? Today we're doing The Great Dictator, 1940, written and directed by Charlie Chaplin. And if you're new to the show, you should know that that's how we operate. The idea is that one of us will suggest a movie, we watch it separately, but we don't talk about it. We save the conversation for the podcast to kind of have one of those conversations that sound like the, you know, what you talk about in the car on the ride home or in the diner afterwards. So part one, we always talk about our overall take. So can I give you mine, Mike? Did you see the movie Jojo Rabbit in 2019? I did not. Okay. Everybody told me to see Jojo Rabbit. I did not either. For all I know, it's brilliant. Uh, okay. Blah, blah, blah. I don't want to say, we didn't see the movie. Blah, blah. But the reason I didn't see it was because it was billed as, and that guy, you know, Taika Waititi, he did uh, what we do in the shadows, which I think is really funny. He's done a lot of work we like. Yeah. It was billed as a quote, anti-hate satire. And when I saw that on all the posters, it's an anti-hate satire. I know that was supposed to deflect the idea that there would be anything amusing about putting Hitler 
in a movie. So like, I get that, but it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I thought to myself, well, you shouldn't have to tell the viewer that like you can, you can trust your viewer enough to say, don't worry, don't worry. It's anti-hate. And that kind of label, I think sets the viewer it puts that viewer in a space where it's kind of like a free pass. So like, if I laugh at this a little bit, it's okay. It's satire. It's satire. It's okay. When I saw The Great Dictator, this movie does not have that kind of disclaimer. And I think this movie does what art like Jojo Rabbit does when it tries to be edgy. Like this movie, The Great Dictator is not edgy. It is the edge. Not to sound all, all Zen like that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. This is not a safe movie. No, There's, it's that, not. That word, is, that word is not associated with this movie in any way. It's one of the unsafest movies I've ever heard of, but I mean that in the best way. Because you have the beloved, one of the most beloved characters in movie history, in movie history, the tramp getting slapped in the face and beaten up by stormtroopers. And then you get a scene where he's doing his fake German and he's fumbling with the microphones and you you don't know how to feel. And Charlie Chaplin doesn't say, don't worry, don't worry, viewer. It's an anti-hate satire because it moves beyond satire into a true indictment of what's going on in Germany. And I think that this movie puts you in a really weird place and it's wonderful. And it, it does what so much art tries to do today, but doesn't have the guts to do it. It totally uncenters you. It unbuckles your seatbelt. And once your seatbelt is unbuckled, it can take you anywhere it wants. And then I think it really, it explores the limits of that. Uh, like you, if I told you Hitler and Mussolini have a food fight at a buffet at their summit about a treaty, you go, uh, I don't, I don't think I want to see, see that. that, but you definitely do. Like, and, and I, and I think that it's it's one of those movies where individual scenes from the movie might be good, but if you watch everything in sequence and you allow the movie to do its work and you lose yourself in it and you say, okay, not only do you trust me to be smart enough to watch this movie, I guess I trust you with the next 90 minutes. You will be infinitely rewarded. Because we've seen, and I, I at least had seen the clips. I'd seen clips from it before, and now it's on Criterion. So I had seen the clip where he does the dance with the inflatable globe, which is brilliant, right? So that's kind of, but it's kind of like a movie scene that everybody knows. But you're right, because you get these scenes that are really funny, and then you get scenes that are really disturbing, where the barber comes back. Remember, he's in the sanatorium, he comes back, and he finds out that they're, you know, they're painting the word Jew on, his, on the glass of his windows. And he says, no, take it. He takes, and they just start smacking him around. And you're like, wait a minute. Like, I thought this was like a Charlie Chaplin movie, but it is, but it isn't. And I think that that's such a great thing to do. And I think that it's unbelievable that this movie was made in 1940. So I did a little research on this. You know, so many people told him not to make this movie. They said, we're not involved in the war. That's a European war. I mean, he started thinking about this in 1938. Um, Chamberlain in England says, we're going to ban the movie. Right? Hitler, I didn't know any of this until I read up on it. Hitler had a guy in Hollywood in charge of like making sure that the right portrayals of, the, of Germany would come out there. Everyone told him not to make it. But FDR told him, I hope you do. And he did. And it's unbelievable. They started filming it in September of 1939. So you think about that, right? By 39, you know, there was already 50,000 people in the camps. And he said, no, I'm making this movie. And when you think of that, you watch this, it's it's like, that's what I mean. Like so many people try to be gutsy today with their art. And this is unbelievably gutsy. Here's where the bleeding edge is, right? Like the tramp has a famous thing where he tries to get his soup and he can't eat his soup right it's it's all gags about fumbling with material objects what if the material object you're fumbling with is a suitcase so that you can escape from the nazis 
you shouldn't be, there's no way that you should be able to pull that off. I don't actually understand how they did it. That's as, that's as unbelievable to me as some of the stunts that we've talked about in previous episodes, um, you know, where a human being shouldn't, shouldn't do that. It's like a Tom Cruise stunt, but it's an emotional stunt. And, and what he says is I can get through this and you will follow me as an audience. And I definitely follow him all the way through because there's, there's something about it that lets you know that the, the, and the payoff does not come until the very end of the movie. This movie makes you wait. I would say, I don't actually know what its runtime is, but I would say it's at least 110, 115 minutes. Yeah. It's two hours for its payoff, but it, but when it finally pays off, boy does it and it yeah. pays back for everything that you've invested because you again you go well th- but that's not actually funny and the 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 funny the gag that you're trying to do in the middle of the scene isn't isn't funny but it's it's even more real than the amount of reality that goes into a gag it's more it's more real somehow than a dramatic scene that that they should be fumbling with the suitcase when they're trying to hide. I don't understand exactly how it makes it more real. I think maybe it flushes out their helplessness and humanity because if they can't handle a suitcase, I don't know how they're going to handle the Nazis that are coming to their door, but it's somehow even more poignant and it and it pulls off exactly what it's what it's trying to do, but any any given gag in this movie could have fallen flat on its face and somehow the the entirety of it works as a whole. What's incredible is that the Nazis in this movie are Nazis. They're not movie Nazis. These are not the same Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that is not, you know what I mean by that? Like they're not, that's not meant to denigrate Raiders and what it does, but Raiders are the, they're perfect villains for Raiders. Harrison they're McGuffin Ford, villains. They're MacGuffin villains, exactly. These, but this is totally different. And again, it shouldn't work. It shouldn't be funny. There are scenes in this movie where you think about how they're all hiding in the secret room and then there's a knock on the door and Charlie Chaplin jumps into the chest and pulls it pulls, like he does this beautiful thing, which is kind of funny, but it's not funny. There's the scene where, how about the scene where um, th- they think there's a coin in the pudding and whoever gets the pudding with the coin is going to have to go and sacrifice his life, right? Now, you could have put that in any context. You could you could have set that in ancient Rome, right? Whoever gets the whoever gets the coin in this pudding has to go um, try to kill the emperor. And you could do a bit like that. It'd be really funny. But when you start doing it with the Third Reich, it's very, very different. And you, it's funny and it's brilliant. But at the same time, it's got elements that should not work together. And, and sometimes you watch it and some of the jokes are just straight gags. Like when he does the whole barbershop routine with the, um, with the Hungarian waltz, like that's self-contained. That could be in any other movie, but then you get other gags. Like when he's trying to get like the suitcase, like you said, or he's trying to get his cane up and and, and the Nazis are coming. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, this is, this is the same universe. And his point is, yeah, these people do live in the same universe. The operatic shave, by the way, is at least 15 years before Bugs Bunny. So remember that. Chuck Jones loved that. And Chuck Jones did that, by the way, as an homage to this movie. The same thing with the barber chairs going up when, when Hitler and Mussolini are making their chairs go up. Did you ever hear of that game or play that game Cards Against Humanity? Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't know this, listeners, it's like apples to apples, but it's all like, you know, off-color stuff and it's inappropriate jokes. A lot of people have complained about that game. And I think they actually have an argument that the movie, that that game, Cards Against Humanity, kind of gives people a free pass to make jokes they would never make in real life or at the office or anywhere and say, oh, no, it's just the game. Like, I had to put these combo of cards together. Oops. Oh, isn't that outre? Isn't that over the top? And you have an excuse and say, oh, it's just a game. Well, in this movie, you have, you know, a, a funny bit with Charlie Chaplin 
in his first sound movie playing Hitler, who also knew about the power of sound. And you watch this mock-up of the Nuremberg rallies and you think, well, that's not funny. And so Cards Against Humanity is a very safe way to be edgy. And this movie, there's nothing safe about it at all. No, I th- this movie plays against the idea of a message and you you don't get the message and you don't get the message. And then you feel convinced that there isn't one. And then he delivers it and it makes the whole movie work. And it's like, how long can you just nosedive at the ground and then pull it up all of a sudden and it works? Welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments or what really struck us this time when we saw the movie. Mike, what's yours? I don't want to put too fine a point on what we just talked about in part one, but the part that I do really like and that comes to mind is when they insist on putting the red carpet in front of Napoloni, who's meant to be Benito Mussolini and his and his family, because they're they're coming over from Italy to to form their unholy alliance against the rest of Europe. Uh, and, and they're trying to figure out the appropriate way to greet him uh, so that so they can decide how they're going to carve up Europe or who's going to stand down or who's going to do what. But anyway, they make they make Mrs. Napoloni in just like pure Charlie Chaplin, pure the tramp style. They make it a fat lady and she just falls over a lot. You you should not be allowed to do that. There's supposed to be some kind of poignance. This is like a holy zone where you don't really go. And he's like, no, I'm going to but I'm going to throw a pizza party there. Right. In, in the in the place where you shall not go. And you're uncomfortable while you're standing around, but somehow the the gags do themselves still work. But the fact that they work also undercuts the atmosphere in which they work, which then makes you want the tension resolved in some way. And he refuses to let go and resolve it until the last two minutes, which really redeemed the entire movie. And again, nobody will ever do that ever again. You, 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 there's no movie like The Great Dictator. You either watch The Great Dictator or you don't. There's many imitators. There's even Sasha Baron Cohen tried to do a live action The Great Dictator. And I think that he has a, if anybody has a similar comic aesthetic, I would say Sasha Baron Cohen gets as close to Charlie Chaplin as you can. But he's he didn't make his movie uh, in in 1940 before we right. were involved. Right. He, he his the, the great dictator by Sasha Baron Cohen is not a moral call to action. Right. And neither is cards against humanity. So just to play off what you said, if if you manage to make all those all those jokes that should not be made in the zone in which they should not be made. But they did spell out a really a truly moral code, which is if you find this uncomfortable, guess what you should be doing right now. Right. It is. Right, it, if you find this uncomfortable, it's because it should make you uncomfortable. And he knew that, though, it, again, like you said, 1940, the way you go after these guys, the way he thought you go after Hitler and Mussolini is you have to do one thing that they can't tolerate, which is to be laughed at. They cannot be laughed at. And I, I think that, that there's something about this movie and the public consciousness that changed the tenor of the conversation. Go open your history book and find out why we actually got involved. But you had to be softened up in the media, which again, that's exactly what Hitler and Mussolini knew at how to soften up their public in the media. And like these jokes should not be funny. I could imagine another person funny enough to make them funny. I could not imagine a person funny enough to make them funny and render into an intelligible message that actually works with no eye rolls. There's nothing ironic about the end of this movie. How do you make an entire movie where you're not serious 
But at the end, you don't say the opposite of what you mean. You say what you truly mean. And it cuts to the core of anybody who's followed you this far. You really, you earned that two minutes. Okay, so what's your moment? So my moment is when the, they're talking about the barber who's been suffering from amnesia and they talk about uh, what they're going to do about him. And he, eventually he leaves and like, well, he's not a serious case. Anyway, he'll be fine. They forget about him. But I thought amnesia was an interesting thing to think about, right? Because it's, it's a plot device. But I think Charlie Chaplin thinks it's also a historical condition is that it's very easy to forget right? About what happens and what people do when they get unbridled power. And it's very easy to make excuses for them and say, no, 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 they're just going to do this. And they just want that. They just want, you know, the sedate land. But like amnesia as a historical condition is really, really interesting when you watch this, because this movie was not made in, um, you know, 1990, when it's a foregone conclusion, who's going to win the war, you know, what's going to happen, right? This is made before the US is in the war. This is made before Pearl Harbor. So, Amnesia is really interesting. I also love it when um, you said before about having to dance with Mrs. Napoli, right? Choreography is a big thing. That's, you know, amnesia is a thematic thing, but a technical thing is there's so much choreography in this movie, isn't there? Like there's literal dancing, but there's all kinds of dance, like the frying pan, hitting the guys on the head out the window, the coin in the pudding, you know, um, jumps into the chest, is that this movie is both disturbing, but it's also the choreography of it is beautiful. In a, in a way that like is really really um impressive to a viewer this movie wants to explode like city lights but the time but it's not time for city lights right now and unless we do something it's not going to be city lights time again but it's but it's bursting the lights are going to go out the the universe is is bursting with the same energy but it's just poured into a different channel Okay, welcome back to so part three. Of course, we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. Dan, what'd you make of the ending? The ending is great. It's totally unexpected. He breaks the fourth wall. You're watching this movie and then all of a sudden you're watching Charlie Chaplin talk to you about the movie you just saw. But one thing I learned from reading, there's a book coming out later this year in December called Charlie Chaplin versus America by Scott Iman. little plug for that. I'm going to interview him for the New Books Network, and I just read this book, and it's terrific. And he he talks in there about how many people, when they saw the movie the first time, thought the ending was cheap, or they thought it was kind of a cop-out, or that it was Charlie Chaplin telling you how to interpret what you had just seen. And I just want to read you something that from the book that Charlie Chaplin said, and get your reaction to this. You ready? He says, it seems entirely conceivable to me that the little barber pushed into the position he was could have made the speech he did. It was all the pent-up emotion resulting from the persecution he and those he loved had been subjected to. He was in a stage where he was semi-hypnotized by the situation. He was no longer the barber, nor was he the dictator, nor was he me. He was a combination of all three. I think the only conceivable way you could resent the ending is if you resented the idea of American action or you just didn't want to get involved and you felt pricked to do something. If you were kicking against the goads, you would be very upset by the ending of this movie, but you would be upset not because it doesn't work, but because it does. And it shouldn't work like everything else in this movie. You should not have the lead actor stare at the camera for two minutes and give a sermon that works because we are sermonized to all day long. But when you watch this, it's different. It totally works. Why do you think it works? Because... This movie has shown you what evil is, but it's also reminded you in its gags what what good is. And if you would like there to still be good, 
you have to do more than sit and watch this movie. Uh, and and if you were if you reacted to what good is in this movie, then you have a moral imperative to listen to what he's saying and not allow evil to triumph over good. And if you don't understand what's good about this movie, there's something wrong with you. This is this is an emotional thermometer. It's a spiritual thermometer. If you watch that scene and you don't think Mussolini should be made fun of, you're in the wrong theater and you're probably on the wrong planet. But if you think that making fake Mussolini's wife a, a fat lady who's bigger than Charlie Chaplin um, and you would like to laugh sometime in the future or your children to laugh or your grandchildren to laugh, you better pay attention to that 120 seconds. Because there was a time when that 120 seconds and what it suggested was not a foregone conclusion. One thing history tells us is that things could have gone a hundred different ways. And it seems now a foregone conclusion that yes, the United States would enter the war, that you know, the, the war would end the way it did. But that was, you know, history of any time shows us that it could have gone a thousand different ways and that it was not a foregone conclusion. And you see, this is a real glimpse into a time when somebody said, you got to do something. And I, I think- that that's what Charlie Chaplin means when it, I w- it was a mix of all three of us. Why can Sasha Baron Cohen not remake it? Because there's a particular moment that calls on people who m- may themselves be very good, but what makes them great is the particular moment at which they are very good. And so the, that moment is not coming back around again. That opportunity for courage is not coming back around again, hopefully. Uh, and Charlie Chaplin answered the call and then used that call to call more people. And so that that's why that's what makes this movie untouchable. You and I cannot understand, nor can anyone else, what it was like to watch this in 1940. We can read about it. We can talk about it on the podcast. But when we sit very comfortably in, our, in the house and turn on the Criterion channel, oh, let's watch this movie. Like you, you can't get a sense of what was in the news and being watching this in 1940. A lot of Americans, I think, were tired and were were in denial, uh, and were just unbelievably fatigued by problems at home and cultural memories of the of the last engagement and entanglement. And in the midst of their denial, Charlie Chaplin said the quiet part out loud, literally. So thanks for listening, everybody, to our conversation about the Great Dictator. Great pick, Mike. We hope you follow us on letterboxd and on twitter at one five min film you could also email us at 15 minute film spelled out at gmail.com let us know what movies you'd like us to do next we keep watching and we'll keep putting them out and also while we're talking please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast we'd really appreciate it thanks for listening everybody we'll see you next time